hello, everybody. Welcome back to Out of the Tower. I am your host, Peter O'Mara, and with me today is the one and only Matthew Teichman, PhD, who happens to be the programming specialist at the University of Chicago's Digital Library Development Center. Uh, with a background in philosophy, computer science, and film, uh, he focuses on bridging the gaps between laypersons and academic philosophy using linguistics to encourage growing interests uh, from the former, uh, that being the laypersons, of course. In addition, he is currently working on using the linguistics frameworks that are built up within a type theory or functional programming setting. He also happens to be the host of the Elucidations Philosophy podcast. So welcome to the show, oh, Matthew. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So um, what we are really going to be focusing on today is um, really getting a sense of your journey, uh, which you and I had been discussing prior to this. Um, and I had found it uh, quite fascinating in terms of uh, what I had been speaking about in previous episodes in terms of what it's like to be a, a post-bachelor uh, philosophy student um, and being able to sort of uh, use those skills in a professional context outside of academia and sort of just perceiving how a lot of people um, view philosophy in general, how they view academic philosophy, especially. And um, I really want to get just your sense of how you have seen, uh, given your background, um, people going about their days incorporating philosophy, whether they realize it or not, or having a particular attitude towards philosophy and what you seem um, to be the objectives that need to be completed in order to uh, build these bridges. And as I would like to say here, speak bridges. <laughs> um, that's a terrible, terrible joke. I apologize. Um, uh, between um, laypersons and academic philosophy, because you have yourself have really talked about um, uh, individuals who um, are just ordinary f people um, who do have this genuine uh, concerted interest in academic philosophy, but they don't uh, know where to begin. So um, I thought we could just go from there. Um, I would just like to know from the very beginning, um, so uh, uh, from the very start, uh, describing uh, your initial path in film, as I understand it, because um, you said that philosophy came to play a larger role. Um, and it led to all these different questions and all these other different branching paths. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, how this all came to be for you? Sure, thanks. Yeah. Um, so my path to philosophy and sort of out of philosophy has been quite circuitous. And I take it unusual. I don't think I've met anybody else with exactly my background. I guess I should mention Francie Russell, who also came to philosophy via film. Uh, who was a former colleague of mine in the PhD program at the University of Chicago, and who is now a professor at Columbia. But anyway, when I was in college, I started off as a French major because of I was really passionate about um, French literature. Um, and I was planning to sort of do uh, linguistics and cinema classes on the side with French with the French major is my main thing. As I took more linguistics and cinema classes, I kind of fell in love with those two fields more and more. At one point, I was, uh, I was contemplating a triple major in all three fields, and that rapidly it rapidly became clear that that was too much of a commitment in terms of a course load. So I can only I imagine switched it up. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, I think I had. A, a, I think it was like my first semester of my sophomore year in college. I booked this. Uh, I booked myself a very uh, ambitious course load and. Uh, 
was rapidly overwhelmed and decided to downgrade French to a minor and keep the other two things as majors. And that was more or less what I did with a few, um, with a few qualifications that are probably not that important, uh, a few bureaucratic qualifications. Uh, so I ended up um, really majoring in uh, linguistics and cinema as an undergraduate. Um, and yeah, I kind of always been really passionate about languages. Uh, I'd been learning French as a foreign language since the age of 10, and I was it's like, it always been one of my favorite classes. And I was also really passionate about cinema. I got really into uh, video production to a certain extent when I was in high school. I was very fortunate to go to a high school that had great technology for that sort of thing. Uh, and I was also really um, passionate about 3D animation. That was one of my major hobbies in, uh, in high school. So when I came to college, I kind of wanted to get more of a kind of like background in the history of cinema to sort of complement my um, my kind of working interest in making animations. Um, and and I was always just, you know, I loved foreign language classes so much. And the thing that I loved about them, I realized later on was a philosophical thing, but I didn't know it at the time because I didn't really discover philosophy until I was kind of on my, on my way out of college. But the thing that I loved so much about language classes was that there are these rules and they try to teach you to learn these, to apply these rules when you're learning a foreign language, the different rules and the rules that you follow when you speak your native language. But the instructor and the textbooks and everything were always struggling to state the rules. They were like, this is the rule. Oh, wait, but there are these like 25 exceptions. They could never just state the rule. They would always get mixed up and they'd be like, okay, this is about the rule, but you're just going to have to figure out how to deal with the exceptions because it's not exactly the rule. Uh, and I just found like that whole phenomenon fascinating. Well, like, how is it the rule if there's like a million exceptions to it? <laughs> what is a rule? Um, uh, and so I found that I got to explore that kind of issue uh, more in linguistics classes. And the linguistics classes also brought out for me uh, just how through and through rule governed human languages. There are all these tiny little details to the patterns that occur in human languages that you would never notice unless you study them very carefully. And uh, that that could be amenable to sort of a formal mathematical treatment I found uh, really compelling. Um, so I would say my main interest in college was in trying to bridge these two interests. So I was you know, fascinated by film and I was learning about all these films in my film history classes. And I was fascinated by human speech in my linguistics classes. And I want to know, like, are there any analogies between the way that we process speech when somebody's talking to us and the way that we understand a film when we're watching a film? Um, and that led me down certain interesting kind of research rabbit holes. I discovered through my film professors that there is a whole tradition in France of trying to combine film theory and linguistics and actually trying to think about, like, is there such a thing as a syntax or a grammar of like a movie scene? And there are even some French film theorists who are trying to apply like Noam Chomsky's theories to the analysis of film, uh, arguably with varying success. Uh, so that was kind of like my big thing when I was in college. And then right when I was sort of on my way out of college, I kind of discovered Wittgenstein, the aesthetics literature in philosophy, which had some pretty interesting stuff to say about like art in general, but also cinema within that like context. Uh, and um, 
and philosophical logic was, which was something that um, it was sort of viewed as kind of like an optional thing you could study as a linguist or not. And my uh, linguistics advisor recommended that I take it. My father actually also recommended that I take it. I can tell you about him later. <laughs> and, uh, so via those three routes, kind of aesthetics, Wittgenstein, and logic, I uh, uh, I got super interested in philosophy. I started noticing all these connections between the film theory I was interested in and like core issues in philosophy. That also kind of sent me down the path uh, looking at some stuff by Elizabeth Anscombe uh, and uh, and some similar philosophers. Uh, so that was sort of like I kind of graduated with like the suddenly having this like new kind of uh, interest in philosophy. And so, so my understanding, it really began with that 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 initial just outstanding question of, well, if you know, how can you call this a rule if there are so many exceptions? That just glaring, that seemingly yeah. glaring contradiction, and that just leads to so many different. No, I, I definitely know what it's like to be there. Um, uh, and it's man. interesting saying that now because that actually turned into my dissertation topic when I ended up doing a PhD in philosophy. I just didn't even think about that till now. Oh, really? Um, and you also mentioned Wittgenstein. I, I myself uh, a bit familiar with uh, a bit of that thought because I um, uh, for my uh, a final essay for uh, my senior year of college, I focused on uh, Wittgenstein and uh, his text uh, Philosophical Investigations, and that was really focused on. Um, uh, he says that you know you can't have a private language. Um, I say otherwise. No, that 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 was very much going down the rabbit hole and being able to merge out the other end. If you know what I'm saying, you say that to yourself in your private language. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm gonna have I'm gonna have to pull that out sometime and uh, review that. Um, <laughs> See, the problem is I refuted Wittgenstein, but he can't understand me because it doesn't live <laughs> in a private language. Uh, here we uh, here we go again. <laughs> um. <laughs> Would you say, if you don't mind me asking, would you say looking back on that path then, because you did kind of go through a different few things before you got to that question of how can you have this rule with all these glaring contradictions um, in language? Yeah, I'm always all over the place. Did you see any sort of um, underlying philosophical current uh, that could be used to inform each area? Look, looking back at least, um, now that I just have a better picture of the timeline, yeah, and that's I absolutely did, and this is sort of what led me to pursue graduate work in philosophy. So I began a PhD in cinema studies after graduating college, um, with an interest in a, a bunch of stuff. I sort of broadened beyond the linguistics thing because I sort of concluded by the end of college that was a little bit of a dead end. We could talk about why that is or whether that was fair later, but that was sort of my conclusion at the end of college. Uh, but I was still really passionate about just like, what is the process of interpreting a film and why do we think they're interesting? Can you learn something from a film? What is the nature of the thing you learn from a film? It seems like it's not just like, I don't know, some boring factual information, but it's like somehow affects your way of thinking. What does that mean? That was the kind of stuff I was interested in when I began in film studies. And what I found as I was pursuing a PhD in cinema studies was that whenever I wanted to kind of go more in depth on some question like that that fascinated me, it was the philosophy literature rather than the film studies literature that was trying to answer that question. And, and I was I was going to actually add to that because um, I think you bring up an interesting point there, um, both being able to 
have that initial spark in the in that um in, in the language course and being able to look back you can start to sort of if, if i'm understanding uh, the 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 pieces of the puzzle correctly i certainly would not want to put uh, words into your mouth um but i think this actually work, uh, serves as a good bridge because we can see now when we're able to look back at the things that influenced us uh, or I, I can definitely say I, when i look at the things that influenced uh, me before i really discovered that philosophy is what i want to do i could see sort of all the underlying currents uh therein that maybe i did not act upon at the time but still had that philosophical quality that i think a lot of lay persons are able to perceive um, in my experience, at least, they're just not able to uh, do a great deal with it because uh, as you would, um, would go on to mention, as I mentioned, this would be a good bridge. Um, they're not sure what to do with it. Um, so if this uh, would be a good time to sort of lead into um, you, uh, your expeditions, of course, uh, with your elucidations uh, philosophy podcast, I'd like to a little bit know, know, I'd like to know a little bit more about how that came uh, to be. Oh, sure. So, yeah, it kind of, um, it basically came out of some great experiences I was having at the university, both in undergraduate, in my undergraduate years, and as a graduate student, I just found myself, whether it was in a reading group with other graduate students, or in a seminar led by a faculty member, or a conference, probably less often at a conference, to be frank. Anyway, whatever the situation was, I was having like just incredibly stimulating, mind expanding conversations with people. And I thought, you know, how lucky I was to be able to have those conversations and to, you know, kind of have my horizons expanded like that. And I thought that, well, you know, given the potential for internet technology to really transmit stuff at a, at a whole level that wasn't previously possible, uh, it would be awesome if like you didn't have to be super lucky to have that experience. It would be awesome if you could, or if you didn't have to have a lot of money to get a fancy college degree to have that experience. Maybe if you just had a computer, you could like Google a bunch of stuff and then get it. Um, so uh, just, just kind of felt to me like there were all these like really smart, really promising, really interesting, really useful ideas getting floated around in academia. Uh, and then just sometimes they would just sort of sit there, kind of like, you know, like little particles that sort of drift to the floor and then not go anywhere. And uh, yeah, I, kinda, I wanted to get them out. Uh, so uh, I would say that's one that was one impetus for the podcast. And another impetus for the podcast is that I'm just like a major sucker for call-in talk shows. Um, so like radio talk shows. Uh, one example that I still listen to a fair amount. I listened to it heavily for many years, but one example is the Brian Larange, uh, the Brian Larange show, uh, which is, which is put out by WNYC. It's a, mostly a news show, but he does a fair amount of talk show stuff too. And he interviews authors about uh, books they just wrote and things like that. So mostly like a kind of current events, politics stuff, but, uh, but also he'll have like somebody on who just wrote a book about, I don't know what, you know, uh, 19th century literature or something and interview about that, interview them about that too. Um, and I just love the fact, I just love the anarchy of you're sitting there and you've prepared a bunch of stuff and you have your expertise, whatever it is, and some completely random person calls in with some totally different life, has no connection to like you, you never would have met them, and they, they're they just going to ask you a question with a level of freshness that's like you just never would have been able to think about it. And it's going to take you, it's going to get you to think in new ways. Uh, and I just, I love that like... 
I love that just freshness of call and talk shows. Um, and, and the fact that like the conversation would go in directions in all these cool directions that it would never have gone in if it was just a person sitting writing a book by themselves. Uh, when you say freshness, uh, you, you, I was actually very um, how ironic, uh, interested with. Uh, I was very um, intrigued by the words you used there. Um, when you say fresh, and you 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 would listen to the to the show, and they these people would call, in and you would have a host, I presume, with a great deal of expertise in this, yes. and you have this person coming in with a completely uh, new perspective, causing you to consider a particular topic in a way that you had never uh, thought about it before. Um, my, my sense is that it, that's a similar attitude that you try to apply um, to the podcast. Um, as far as I understand, I don't, again, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but I guess what I just found really curious about that is this idea of in both what you've seen in or heard, I should say, in those uh, kinds of uh, call in radio shows, as well as. I presume with a lot of uh, what you've experienced in your own podcast is the freshness more coming from someone who is they're, they're making you think about a particular topic in a way that you'd never considered before and it's enriching and it, it might cause you to take an entirely different perspe perspective if that's what it comes to or is it more individuals where they don't necessarily they don't possess the expertise on the particular subject they they are what could be called lay persons but we nevertheless acknowledge that they have had in many respects a fundamentally different life than yours but they're still touching upon this fundamental uh, just the term i want to use here is sort of spark that uh, that like that allowed them to act upon a particular philosophical consideration and granted most likely are not going to arrive at the same conclusion as uh, someone like yourself because of your background and your expertise, but you still found the it to be fresh. I, I feel like I, I'm, I'm I'm getting two different definitions of of the word fresh and how to interpret in this particular situation, depending upon the kind of person who is coming in with the perspective. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I guess the idea that I have, the sense in which I'm using the term fresh is, you know, when you're in your professional life, when you're whatever, um, interacting with other people in the department, if you're living the academic life, or if you're interacting with your colleagues in an office, if you're in a, you know, some other type of job, non-academic job, or if you're at family gatherings, or if you're hanging out with your friends and all those environments, there's a ton of basic assumptions about basically everything. A lot of like moral and political assumptions, but also just basic philosophical assumptions that are just shared between all of you. And that's fine. There's certain kinds of like um, advanced kind of um, in the weeds discussions you can have in those contexts when everybody has shared assumptions, they're not debating foundations all the time. Uh, but the downside to that is that it can really get you stuck in your normal habits of thought and get you not to see things that you kind of should be seeing. Um, and like one fundamental thing that I think it's really easy, it's really hard to see, and which talking to some random person helps you to see is ways in which you're not being clear. Um, so one of the things I absolutely love about teaching, I didn't expect to love teaching when I went to grad school, I expected to hate it, but it turns out it's like actually my favorite thing. Um, uh, the incredible experience I have with students all the time is they ask a question which is sincere, and they're trying to understand the material, 
and but they'll come up with some difficulty in understanding the material that I never anticipated. And always what that reveals to me is uh, you know, a lack of depth in my own understanding and a lot or a lack of clarity. Um, and so it's just like talking to somebody who doesn't share uh, any of your baseline assumptions or who doesn't share some core set of your baseline assumptions is just going to bring out some ways in which you didn't realize you weren't being clear. Um, and it's always like an enriching experience and opening things up beyond just students. Cause like students is always a fairly curated portion of the right, population. Right. It's like whoever could afford to go to the college, whoever lives in the area, whoever's in, whoever comes from the same country you come from, but opening up to the internet, that's like a whole nother level <laughs> of who knows what this person's assumptions are. Uh, so I just, I personally find it an amazing way to like get out of your head. Uh, it's really easy to get stuck in your own head. And I, and I, I would say, especially in this day of internet forums and social media, you know, I, I think you very aptly put who knows what people are going to say, who knows what's going on in there. <laughs> um, I'm sure, I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure we could make a few guesses, but you know, um, um, and it's also interesting that you brought up. It's um, interesting the way those it, it, things are both predictable and unpredictable in those contexts a lot. Um, and it's also fascinating that you uh, brought up um, uh, students in this particular case, because as I understand it, um, one particular example I've I've heard you mention is uh, when you're when I understand when you're teaching uh, to science majors and you get into topics um, about AI. Um, and uh, ethics and general um, morality, for example. Um, and a lot of them are just so uh, dead set in their ways, uh, to put it one way. I'm um, saying, you know, it's got to be like this. I, I can't deal with this nebulousness. What are you talking about? You know, um, to hell with philosophy. What are you, what, what's going on here? Um, and I, I, in my experience, I understand a little bit of that um, because one of the things I do, um, I, I talk about in one of my uh, earlier episodes here. Um, I shouldn't say earlier. This is episode four. Um, <laughs> uh, this is your late phase. Right, right. Um, <laughs> one thing that I've definitely experienced is philosophy does have a little bit of an inherent uh, vagueness, uh, nebulousness to it, that if you're not willing to put in the time and discipline to really understand that nebulousness, um, and I think that's an especially curated uh, portion of the population who are willing to try something like that, it can be really off-putting to those who don't. Um, in a variety of different contexts and whether that can be just a friend or family member that you know of um, or, or even in many cases that I found with myself and other um, post-bachelor uh, majors uh, in the professional setting, especially when you're trying to make it in this job market. Um, you know, for example, because uh, I, I was saying that you and I understand that critical thinking within philosophy um, allows you to accomplish so much and be able to think about unbelievably complex things um, for a long period of time and still come out with a generally um, clear picture of things and how you want to proceed. But normally when we think of the term critical thinking in almost any other context, you don't have all of the, you don't have all of that skill um, within that term. So if so, if you were to put the term critical thinking, you know, as a result of a philosophy uh, study and major on a resume or a cover letter, um, uh, unless you can really find 
a, a very specific angle, I think, um, that's especially directed towards the role he might be applying for. You, you, uh, I think someone who's reviewing that letter resume is liable to say, well, you know, why is this um, significant? W- w- what do you mean by critical thinking? How is this different from the critical thinking that I might think about in almost any other uh albeit professional context. Um, That's definitely been my experience. And um, just to sort of move it back to uh, your particular experience here, um, you have found, you seem to have found with uh, philosophy, with uh, the wording of uh, certain questions, especially with science majors um, who have these really, you know, hostile reactions. Um, Maybe not literally. I should certainly hope not. Um, But uh, they'll be like, no, I can't deal with this. What What are you talking about? Uh, oh, to hell with philosophy. And instead of saying, you know, yeah. let's ask a philosophical. It's BS as a standard. Yes, yes. Yeah. Bunch of philosophical yes, BS. Yes, absolutely. And and I do think, for better or for worse, I think, I, I think the inherent vagueness that you have to work within philosophy to coax a lot of groundness and um, systems from it does take a lot of work. Um but what you mention is you'll 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 say you'll you'll go from so let's ask a philosophical question to do you think a machine will be able to think one day so you're really just replacing the word philosophy with an expression like that and then they're all over it um even if they don't have the same background um as you or someone within a you know broader philosophical context and grounding, they've still got that enthusiasm, um, which, as far as I can tell, I think is incredibly important to spark and nourish, uh, given how we've seen in this day and age how incredibly um, slow it is for policy and morality to catch up with uh, growing technologies. Um, I, I could weave you stories from South by Southwest. Um but but in your experience, how, how do you try to work with that cynicism and, and that subsequent um, enthusiasm? Yeah, um, good question. I think this is a very difficult problem. Um, but I would agree with. I, well, I guess you were paraphrasing me, so obviously I agree with what you just said. Uh, <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so I would agree uh, 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 with your paraphrase of me that um, there's simultaneously a um, strong anti-philosophy sentiment, which I would actually categorize as part of a broader kind of like anti-intellectualism that, you know, for whatever reason seems to be uh, part of the kind of mainstream in American culture right now. Um, Certainly wasn't always mainstream in American culture, and it certainly isn't mainstream in necessarily in every other culture. and uh, despite that, I don't think we can ever get away from philosophical questions. And anyone who claims to be, you know, uninterested in philosophy or like, you know, not bothering themselves about philosophical questions, at least in my experience, is in fact actually worrying about them, but just not calling it philosophy. Um, so there's a question about how to deal with this. So how to deal with the fact that people are self-evidently actually interested in philosophy, uh, but for some reason or other, there's this idea of what philosophy is, so they don't want to call it philosophy. There's this idea of what philosophy is that's somehow negative. Maybe it's BS or whatever it is, whatever the stereotype is. And for that, because of those cultural associations, they don't want to call this interest philosophical. They just want to call it whatever. 
Uh, so there's a question about how to deal with this. Obviously, I think this is a, um, uh, well, I think this is a problem. You might think it's not a problem. Um, I tend to think it's a problem when, you know, there's been thousands of years of writing on a topic uh, that's pretty sharp and incisive and interesting. Um, and here's this topic that you're also interested in, but you don't get to engage with the thousands of years of writing that's taken place on that topic. Uh, that just seems like a missed opportunity to me. Tremendously um, so. So, yeah. So what do we do about this? And I don't know that I have an answer to that. I think it's a very difficult problem. I think in general, dealing with problematic cultural trends is like incredibly difficult because, you know, it's just difficult for a single individual to have big transformative impacts uh, uh, at, at scale uh, in general. Uh, so changing a cultural trend, it's hard to see how an individual can really do that. Um, you know, so basically, probably what we have to do, I would guess, is just throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. And one thing that I have thrown at the wall to see if it sticks, which you mentioned, is when I was teaching in the humanities core at the University of Chicago, which I did for the first four years after finishing my PhD, um, I taught a class called Language in the Human, which is a super interesting class. It's, I think, one of the most interesting classes content-wise offered at the entire university. Uh, but for some reason or other, and this is like one of these little, you know, details of our cultural moment, uh, not necessarily the easiest thing to explain. For some reason or other, that class attracts all the undergraduate STEM majors who don't like the humanities. <laughs> now, there are lots of STEM majors. I want to be careful here because there's a stereotype that this is the way all STEM of majors course, are. And in my anecdotal experience, it's like 50-50. So some, major, some STEM majors are super into the humanities. Maybe they pick up a second major or a minor in the humanities. But it's definitely true that there's also a culture within STEM fields of thinking like, oh, we don't need it. It's superfluous. It's useless. It's, um, uh, it, um, it's obsolete. We, you know, we, we could do better stuff with tech now or I don't know what, you know, something like that. Um, that, that attitude definitely also exists. Um, and for some reason, that attitude seems to get selected for. Uh, in who enrolls in this class. Uh, so one thing that I tried when I was teaching the class, I had incredibly bright students, but they were like definitely not self-described philosophers. Right, right. In fact, when I would go around the room, you know, it'd be like, hey, what are you studying? Ah, econ, computer science, physics, 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 mathematics, physics, mathematics, physics. And then when I'd go around asking the room, asking why people took the class, they would say, oh, you know, I'd rather jump off a cliff than have to read a poem. Jesus Christ. Did you hear in some of these other humanities core classes, they have to like read poems? Oh, <gasps> yeah. So um, anyway, there was a fair amount of that sentiment. So an approach that I tried out and I, well, we, there's a question about what it would mean for it to work, but I think it worked in the sense that uh, the students wrote some really great papers and I enjoyed working with them and they seemed to enjoy the class. So I guess it worked in that sense. Uh my, the strategy that I pursued was to just um, skip the part where I called philosophy and skip straight to the issue, which they already have a view about. Um, so there's, you know, any, any, anybody, regardless of whether they've studied philosophy, uh, uh, has a philosophical view about lots of core issues. Uh, most, I don't think I've ever met a single person, for example, who doesn't have a view about um, whether there's an objective fact of the matter about uh, uh, something being morally right or wrong. I think every single person that I've ever met has a view about that. They either, I mean, there's lots of things you could think, but broadly, they could either think, yes, some things are objectively right and wrong. 
you know, it's not uh, human dependent. That's just a fact of the matter about whether it's right or wrong. And there, uh, you know, other people think, no, it's just, uh, um, it's somehow relative. It's relative to the person, relative to the culture. There's no such thing as right or wrong, period. There's just right or wrong relative to this moment, this location, this whatever. Um, that's, I mean, so that kind of like moral realism question is one thing, uh, one example of a philosophical position that everybody has a view about. There's a related question that I often get people talking about too, which is like, what you know, it, uh, uh, whether a movie's good, is that like objectively true or false? Um, is you know, um, uh, Star Wars: A New Hope objectively a better movie than Attack of the Clones? Um, I don't think I've met a single person who's seen both of those movies who doesn't have a view about that so so um, many so yeah. many sand haters out there if you catch my meaning <laughs> <laughs> um i digress yeah yeah um and then you mentioned another one which is like can a machine think and um i found at least among my students that the prevailing view is um if you know if i think this is because the influence how influential the turing test ended up being in popular culture but um yeah i think definitely uh you know, a majority of my students have thought, well, if a computer can trick you into thinking it's a person that it's thinking. Uh, but nonetheless, everybody has a view about it. So there's a, there's a majority opinion and, and, and they're dissenters as well, but, uh, pretty much everybody like has some kind of view about that. I have I've, I don't think I've, uh, like met anybody who's like, oh, that doesn't matter. That's stupid. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah, no, I, they, they care about whether like, you know, like a robot is something you can have a emotional relationship with. Uh, or is it just people? Or like, this is something people care about. Um, so it, it just seems to me that, like, you know, maybe with there are some super esoteric philosophical debates that really nobody cares about. Um, you know, uh, what's the best formal frame? Uh, what's the best formal framework for uh, explaining pronoun anaphora? Yeah, nobody's going to care about that probably. Um, <laughs> um, uh, off the bat, unless you kind of you know, motivate some stuff for them. Uh, but most of the core issues in philosophy, I think people actually have views about. So if, you know, not calling it philosophy for the time being, and then doing a big reveal later, uh, gets people to think about it, then uh, my goal of getting people to think about it has been met. I, I would, I would hate to um, try and employ potentially um so feel free to call me out on this a platitudinous uh, word here um and I, I certainly would not want to get the wrong perspective um and first of all i want to say i think your particular approach to this is um godsend because uh what one of personally uh i think uh at least in the english language uh the four most powerful words are all none most and some and i think when you say that you're dealing with a uh, science majors these stem majors who are about 50 50 in terms of their attitudes towards philosophy um i guess if i was in your shoes i would not want to take a particular perspective that would demonstrate any kind of alienation, if you will, um, because because Ooh. half of those students are already coming in uh, within this, within that demographic of a with a particular mindset about this, and you're already on the risk of just complete and utter alienation beyond it would seem the fact that they've enrolled in this class, and I imagine they'd like to get a good grade. Um, so so to that end, it, it does really seem like a lot of students do want to uh, learn more about this and they do have a particular perspective regardless of their background. Uh, but the word I want to cautiously 
use here is it seems like in many cases it's about avoiding trigger words um and again call me out if, if you don't feel yeah. that's that's a the best way to describe it but for me at least i can see that yes yeah. because as someone uh personally at least i would not want to be um uh so disgustingly anecdotal here um as someone who does believe in you you've probably heard the term you know distinction without a difference in philosophy, you learn there are distinctions everywhere. And if you're going to say distinction of the difference, you've got to be able to make a very well-conceived uh, well argument uh, for why there's a distinction without a difference in uh, using particular words. But if you, use, if you use a particular philosophical word or phrase as opposed to approaching it from the angle that you typically do, um, do you think therein lies the potential for anything to be lost in translation that on the one hand you do have a way a, a a practically genius way if i might say of being able to be inclusive and incorporate um people of all these different intellectual backgrounds and by extension uh spark uh, a very serious curiosity within them uh i'm just speaking from my own experience here i do worry about whether or not for all the passion that might be sparked and for all the different ways we can inclusively approach this particular topic, something might be lost in translation if at some point within the course of curriculum, we're not making an attempt to better understand certain terms, even if um, it's, it, it, it's framed in the context of the, of the class. Um, and I'm sorry if I can't think of a great example off the top of my head, but I, I guess for me, at least, uh, it's it's a great approach. I just worry if, well, if there's a great philosophical way of expressing this um, that's rooted in philosophy, but I don't want to put off um, half of the class potentially uh, by using it. But I do worry that uh, a particular way of thinking about it in this term might even expand um, their ideas on it further, and it might um, spark that curiosity further, but there's an inherent risk in it. How would you personally um, approach a situation like that? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. If I understand it right, uh, the question is, um, if what uh, an instructor of a philosophy class does is present the philosophy material in a way that's um, uh, minimally alienating to the students, um, like, wouldn't it be somehow sad, or aren't they risk of missing? Aren't they at risk of missing out on something if that's the only version of the philosophical concept or view that they're ever exposed to? Like the one that's been specifically kind of like curated for them. Like, isn't there some value to students at some point in their lives uh, having to grapple with terminology that's maybe at least a little bit alien? right? Right. And, and, is that, is right. That right? And I guess I guess to just build upon that real quickly, I'm not I'm not in any way trying yeah. to imply that the approach that you typically take is in any way watered down or dumbed down or anything like that. I would never want to suggest that. Mm -hmm. I guess just for me, um, because I do, I would see a lot of curiosity in my, uh, students if I was in your shoes. Um, but I also have to consider, you know, th th this particular way of going about it does offer a lot. Um, and even if I employ this philosophical word or term or, or even just really quick way of, of thinking about a particular issue that's rooted in philosophy, um, 
it could it could expand upon the way they think about it. Maybe not the way they ultimately think about, it, but it's, it's another um, line of th- uh, reasoning to consider. But my worry would be. Even if you use it purely in the context of, and here's a way to consider in the context of um, a of AI, um, and don't worry about the greater literature or meaning beyond that, that that's going to put them off, and you'll have to stick to this way that's inclusive, um, and rightfully so. But you, you might feel that some frustration um, on your part is starting to build because you have these um, these words that offer a lot, but because these students are practically triggered by it, that potential line of thinking is just going to have to be closed off. That's my particular concern, at least. I could be totally wrong. You could have seen something uh, completely different. I'm all ears. Yeah, I guess my general view about um, about how to present any philosophical view is it's important not to get wedded to any one formulation. Um, So just as um, I would object to a history philosophy class, and I think there are some history philosophy classes that do this, um, just as I would object to a history philosophy class that won't, um, that refuses to paraphrase any, uh, any of the content of the text in terminology other than the terminology the author themselves would have used. I do object to that, and we can get into why. Uh, I think it's a bad approach to history of philosophy, bad way to understand history, bad way to understand everything. Uh, anyway, just as I would object to that, I would also object to a class that gets too hung up on and obsessed by, or whatever, or locked into the initial way it gets presented the initial non-alienating way it gets presented to students to get them interested. Um, that's a useful, maybe sort of gateway um, uh, uh, approach, uh, you know, to way to, way to uh, increase student engagement, but it's never a good thing to stagnate in your teaching methods. It's never, good, uh, it's never good to stagnate as a philosopher either, I think, in the way that you express your ideas. Um, so, it's just, I think it's uh, the best possible thing never to get stuck in any one sort of framework or way of thinking about something. You always go back, you know, so so uh, uh, maybe if I'd had those students for more than a year, I had them for a year, which is pretty good. Like you usually don't have students for that long. Uh, but if I'd had those students for more than a year, maybe the next phase would have been to present them with the same idea in a more capital P philosophy manner um, uh, to see to let them think about how those two sort of formulations are related. Um, and maybe there'd be a third way of presenting it. Um, so I, I guess I'm just in favor of always changing up uh, your way of thinking about something um, because you'll always find that it enhances your understanding somehow. Um, and if I can uh, quote something one of my guests said once on my podcast, this is Greg Koboli. He was, in fact, quoting his dissertation supervisor, Ed Keenan. But the quote is awesome. The quote is, um, uh, uh, if you can't say something in two ways, you haven't said it at all. <laughs> I love that. So I, I agree with that. <laughs> um, so potentially that's a way of addressing the problem you mentioned. I think um, it, you know, as long just as you weren't wedded to sort of the um, most obvious way of presenting the uh, 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 the material, just in the same way we get presented at a philosophy conference, you also shouldn't get wedded to your like classroom one hundred and one way of presenting of the material. Course. 
uh, you should always be challenging yourself to um, approach it. In Absolutely. Ways. In fact, one of my um, old professors, um, uh, if, I, if I'm allowed to uh, name drop here, um, I, I should, I would, would hope. Um, if I just did. Of course. Um, uh, uh, William Beardsley of the University of Puget Sound. Um, as I understand it, uh, one, one thing that he uh, would tell uh, a lot of his new students is the dictionary is not your friend because, he, because um, he, he himself apparently had encountered students who, and understandably so, so I'm not holding this against him or anyone. Um, he'd be teaching a philosophy 101 course and it, you know, of course, it, it would start with you know basic question of you know, what is love, what is good, and then some students would literally go literally go to Oxford or Merriam Webster to um. Oh, this is incredibly common. This is the most common thing for like uh, the first paper written by a fall semester freshman to do is they'll go to the dictionary to resolve disputes. Yes, so I I think you know to to, to any you know incoming philosophy majors out there. Um, you're going to want to stay away from that. You know, it'll save you. It'll save a lot of time. That's just my two cents. But you know, I think it's interesting though. Like, I haven't really seen anybody try to reflect on why students do that. I have a guess as to why they do that, and my guess is that, uh, like, this is the way people adjudicate disputes in everyday conversation. So if you're like disputing, like, oh, you know, the Okapi, uh, you know, lives in, you know, somewhere in Africa. I forget exactly where Okapis live. Uh, uh, no, it doesn't. Well, we're going to adjudicate this dispute by consulting a reference. Um, and that's just a guess. I don't really know, but I, I would find it fascinating if somebody could like, just do a little archeology span on this student practice of like going to the dictionary for help. Uh, cause I think it's a really, I think it's an interesting move. And I, of course, you know, it's not like, I mean, we, you know, we need to be, um, critical of it as teachers, of course, but I think it's just, uh, you know, there, I think there's some interesting work to be done there and understanding like the psychology behind it. I actually think that'd be a really um, interesting line of um, work to pursue. Um, I wonder if I wonder And th there's another case in professional philosophy. I don't know if he came across this paper, but Alex Byrne, I can't remember when, six months ago, maybe published a paper on the philosophy of gender. Um, and um, in, in uh, I forget which journal now. Uh, I think it's Philosophical Studies. Uh, check Google after listening to this to confirm that. Uh, anyway, it's either Philosophical Studies or a similar um, prestigious philosophy journal. Um, uh, it, it was a uh, uh, you know a piece uh, in which he argued that the word woman means adult human female. And one of the things he did at the very beginning of the paper was quote the dictionary. Um, and like there is such a massive pylon from like every, at least every philosopher in my social circles. Uh, for him doing that, like, what is he, you know, he's like a established figure, and, right, right. You know, big fancy professor at MIT. He's like, opens a paper by quoting the dictionary. What? We're all teaching our students never to do that. <laughs> um, uh, so anyway, I, that moment too, I think also just like, I think maybe you should give us an occasion to examine this practice of quoting the dictionary and try to figure out what's going on there. Absolutely. And I, I'm definitely the kind of person where if I see an idea or if, I, or if I see a particular perspective and I see there's a lot of, you know, backlash to it, whatever that may be, a lot of taboo, what, whatever it is, if it's fundamentally negative, I'm the kind of person who's going to want to investigate it even more. I'm like a child who, if you tell them not to do something, they're going to want to do it even more. Kind of makes me wonder how I got Absolutely. as far as this. 
Curiosity killed the cat. Yeah, it hasn't killed you yet. No. You can never be too careful in my experience. You've got to be <laughs> vigilant. So um, I'd like to sort of towards uh, turn things towards a bit of a conclusion here, uh, wrap things up a little bit. Um, so just to sort of uh, hopefully uh, bring things uh, full circle. So moving forward, so what do you really think need to be the steps taken by both, um, I think, educators, I think even uh, students on their part, uh, as much as they're able to do within their station and general capacity, given their background, um, in order to dissolve, I suppose, a lot of these misconceptions about philosophy, as well as being able to um, just uh, just not only passionately and enthusiastically engage with it as you've described but also i suppose sort of push the ball forward i know we've kind of been all over the place but i think the real um struggle at the end of the day is being able to disseminate um these ideas uh using language in which nothing gets lost in translation in one example or in another example keeping your mind open, even if it's not something that gels with your background. Um, what do you think? I suppose what I'm ultimately trying to say at the end of the day here is if you had to really say in broad terms, what do you think academics and then lay persons need to do on their part to really build the bridge? Yeah. So I guess now we get into a view of mine that's uh, definitely not going to win me any popularity contests. I'd love to hear um, it even more. I <laughs> Um, I really think that uh, academics um, have um, been remiss in recent years when it comes to um, taking the non-academic world seriously. Um, so uh, there's a massive effort that needs to happen in philosophy departments of acknowledging that people who graduate and don't become philosophy professors are, can live um, eudaimonic, uh, philosophically fulfilling lives. Um, even if they're not philosophy professors. Um, uh, one like just very concrete manifestation of this is I think philosophy professors need to get serious about placing both their undergraduate alums and their graduate alums uh, in non-academic careers because the number of philosophy undergraduate majors and especially the number of philosophy PhDs far exceeds the number of academic positions that there are. Um, um, that's just sort of a basic like courtesy, I think, that's um, owed any student um, is, uh, you know, making some moves towards placement. Um, like it or not, that is the um, that is the uh, purpose that has been assigned to universities is to like play a role in uh, placing their students uh, into a career that's going to be a natural continuation of the interest that they developed and nourished as an undergraduate. Um, so get serious about job placement. I think that that means developing relationships with people in industry. Uh, that means, um, you know, building up your contact list in wherever, uh, you know, um, successful companies are in the same location as your university, building up your contact list, uh, you know, um, going to bat for your students, showing the people who work at those companies that uh, philosophy majors have an incredible amount of untapped value to bring to their companies. Um, um, and building up contacts in, in the academic job market is also, you know, an important part of it. And then for undergraduates, if they're going to graduate school, building up contacts in 
you know, among graduate admissions committees, it's obviously also part of that. Uh, philosophers are also completely asleep at the wheel as far as that goes. Um, but um, uh, so that's that's an important part of it too. But but really, I think um, opening up um, a connection with the non-university world is absolutely imperative um, because we what we have now is this culture where um, students, the further and further they get into the philosophy major, the the more and more they're taught to disrespect the non-academic life. Um, oh, it's selling out. Oh, it's unreflective. Oh, it's stupid. It's you know not interesting. It's smart people don't do this. Um, I'm going for the pure, unadulterated life of the mind. Um, and uh, I think that talk and thought is absolutely corrosive and toxic. Um, and uh, there's absolutely nothing wrong with uh, you know going into uh, professional philosophy, becoming a philosophy professor. I think it's a fantastic activity, uh, especially um, for people who have uh, sort of like you know research and teaching inclinations. It's not everybody, but it's uh, a lot of people, and um, that's a resource that should be tapped. But um, um, yeah, there's this. Um, I think just complete lack of valuing um, any kind of life or any kind of career uh, that is not academic that prevails at least in R1, uh, um, you know, philosophy departments, uh, you know, resource oriented, uh, big university philosophy departments. Um, and, um, yeah, that, you know, that attitude needs to go. And I think that attitude can be, um, critiqued and undermined at the kind of atomic level in the way that philosophy classes are taught. So if from the ground level, from the moment you do your philosophy 101 through the end of the major, if you, um, you know, like, accept ideas from the popular media uh, as potential interventions in a philosophical discussion. That's one way of signaling that the thoughts that, you know, normies are having are relevant and can potentially make a real contribution. Um, that's a way to reach out to maybe students who are potentially hostile to the idea of philosophy and show them, you know, if you want them to take you seriously, you have to start taking them seriously. Um, so, you know, um, I guess broadly what I would recommend is uh, you know building up a culture of engagement with uh, the non-academic world and crucially respect for the non-academic world, uh, I think is a necessary first step to uh, getting more people interested in studying philosophy and also to uh, getting a, a more um, you know uh, 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 people with job openings interested in looking at philosophers for their jobs. Absolutely. I, I would, and I would definitely encourage um, the job market to be investing more in ph uh, philosophy majors. Gee, I wonder where I could have gotten that idea. Um, I <laughs> think, um, that but if you, it's crazy because if you contrast like a math major, um, you know, and like I'm, this is not a knock on math. I love math. It's one of my favorite things in the world. Um, but if you contrast just the perception of a math major, um, you know, uh, all these high profile companies uh, are just, will just look at an application from anybody who's a math major, not because the job will have them do any math at all, literally just because there's this sense that if you do a math major, you're smart, you're precise, you're a rigorous thinker, and that's going to be useful to our company, but not because it has anything actually to do with math. Um, this is the, like, this is the, um, I think, image that, uh, professional philosophers need to send out to the world about philosophy. Um, and they're in a position to, because I think, frankly, um, 
you know, uh, philosophical academics are really good at thinking sharply and precisely about incredibly difficult questions. They're not afraid of something being incomprehensible. They deal with incomprehensible stuff all the time. And this is like a really useful real world skill. Um, I think there's potentially, uh, uh, the, I think there's the opportunity to really, you know, um, get this sort of like, get philosophers the kind of cultural cachet that math and physics majors have. I get philosophy majors that cultural cachet, um, just given the, the way the field has progressed. Um, and it's, it's just striking that like, there are all these other fields where, um, you know, you're considered a legitimate candidate for the job, even though the job has nothing to do with that field, just because of the cachet that field has. Absolutely. Um, you, you need to be able to read in between the lines, regardless of what major you're dealing with, uh, when reviewing those credentials, it would seem. Well, uh, Matthew Teichman, thank you so, so much for being on the show today. It's been an absolute Thanks honor. Oh, same here. <laughs> Hope we can do it again sometime. Oh, you can be sure of it. Um, well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much once again for tuning in. Now, I've got to get going back into the tower, but I'll see you all when I emerge once again. You know, if, well, curiosity doesn't kill me first. <laughs>